Hello, everyone, and welcome to Worship at Grace. You know, we're in a series called When the Well Goes Dry, and we're talking about those situations in life where your hopes and dreams are shattered, where you're deeply disappointed, or uh, where the bottom just sort of falls out of your life and you're tempted to despair. If you live in this world long enough, the well will go dry in some area of your life. And when it happens, it really hurts. Someone has called pain the universal language. And I've always felt that that was an apt description because no matter where you go, no matter what the culture, pain is a part of everyone's life. I can't help but wonder how many of you listening to me right now have a health challenge that's pretty serious. Some of you live with daily limitations and discomfort. Some of you are facing surgery or some medical procedure and you're nervous or scared about that. I believe behind every device tuned into this message right now, there is a story of pain and heartache. The psalmist says in Psalm 88, my soul is full of trouble and my life draws near the grave. Well, followers of Jesus are not exempt from trouble. But the good news is we have the resources to flourish and thrive through troubled times. Jesus said, in this world, you're going to have trouble, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Now, that should be a tremendous encouragement to all of us who are continuing to navigate this COVID-19 pandemic. No one knows how long the impact will last. What we do know is that God's mercy and grace and comfort <laughs> is gonna outlast it. And that gives us tenacity and hope to keep going strong. Now, today, we're gonna look at a man in scripture who held on to his faith even though the well had gone dry on his health. In getting started, I want us to walk through the highlights of Job's story. Some of you have heard this before. Some of you who may be new to Scripture, this is going to be a brand new story for you, and I think you're going to be amazed because Job was this really fantastic guy. We pick up the story here in God's Word. This is the book of Job, chapter 1 and verse 1. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. Now, as we're about to see, Job is about to hit some hardships, but it's not a discipline inflicted by God because of his sin. Job is actually sort of a model of righteousness. I've noticed that when people suffer, the first question is normally, why is God punishing me? But trouble is about to invade Job's life, even though he is a model of morality and a person all of us would look up to and respect. He also happened to be pretty well off. I think you'll agree, righteous and rich is a combination we'd all love to have, right? <laughs> we keep on reading verse 2. 
He had seven sons and three daughters. And he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 5,000 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. Now, that is a lot of livestock, a lot of wealth. In today's currency, Job would be worth at least a few million dollars. And depending on his land holdings, it could be far more than that. But as we read on, we see he also had a thriving family life. Verse 4, his sons used to take turns holding feasts in their homes, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So these siblings are getting along. They love to hang out together. Some large families aren't very close. And frankly, they don't want to have much to do with each other. But Job and his wife had somehow fostered a family environment here where everybody kind of enjoys one another. They get along. There was probably good-natured humor and teasing, probably good communication that went on when they were together, and a genuine sense of love. And some of you have that with your family, and if you do, you know what a treasure that is. So get the picture. As you read this intro to his life, it's clear that Job is godly, he's respected, he's prosperous, and his family life is awesome. But buckle your seatbelt because all of that is about to come crashing down around him. And it happens so suddenly. Who would have guessed that just three months ago, we would be meeting strictly online as a church? No sports, no big events, living through a pandemic? Who would have guessed? Job is about to experience how suddenly and without warning, the well can go dry in your life. Verse six here reads, one day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came with them. Now, scripture teaches that Satan is a created angelic being who proudly rebelled against God and was expelled from God's presence. But now, apparently, he's permitted to come back into his presence. He's sort of like a student, if you will, expelled from school, who now asks permission for an audience with the headmaster. And verse 7 says, The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. People tend to envision Satan being in hell because that is his ultimate destiny. But currently, currently, Satan is in the, in the world. He's the prince of the power of the air. He's the prince of this world. Scripture even calls him the God of this world. And he's roaming about, according to 1 Peter chapter 5, roaming about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Verse 8, then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Again, 
it's clear that Job is like a model of what it means to be an authentic person of faith. Does Job fear God for nothing, Satan replied? Have you not put a hedge of protection about him and his household and, and everything he has? You've blessed the works of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. Now, in Scripture, Satan has many names, but one of them is the accuser of God's people. And that's exactly what he's doing here. You see, he's a fault finder. He's an accuser. He's going, no wonder Job does so well. I mean, God, you've set him up for success. You've put this hedge of protection around him, and I can't touch him. I mean, it's like nothing goes wrong in this dude's life. But we read on, verse 11. He says, but stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then. Everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself, do not lay a finger. This is a hard thing for some people to embrace, but Satan attacks only by God allowing it. Don't think of Satan as God's equal. That is a laughable concept. Satan has none of those godlike characteristics like omniscience, omnipresence, and, and omnipotence like God has. But, but, make no mistake, he is a very malicious foe. Paul said he masquerades as an angel of light. In other words, his main M.O. is deception. He is a lying, murderous despot who wants to destroy your life. But if you're a follower of Jesus, I don't want that to make you all paranoid and scared. Please keep in mind, the true Christ follower should never be intimidated because Greater is the one who is in you, who's in you? God, the Holy Spirit, than the one who is in the world, referring to Satan. As we read on here, we see that Satan makes Job a target, and Job becomes a victim of treachery and theft. I'm reading now in verse 13. One day, when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby and the Sabaeans, that's a group of uh, neighboring tribes, attacked and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, Another messenger came and said, the fire of God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. Wow, you talk about the well going dry. Now, some of you have experienced horrible financial consequences from this, this current pandemic. But think about it, in a day of no insurance, no government subsidy, 
Job suddenly found himself completely broke. Two months ago, on Monday, March the 16th, the stock market tumbled nearly 13% as the coronavirus pandemic led to massive shutdowns. That was the biggest one-day plunge ever, and it was the highest percentage decline since the infamous Black Monday crash of 1987. But Job's loss was much greater than that. He is losing everything in this series of tragedies. But then came the worst blow of all. All 10 of his children were killed. Verse 18, while he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. As a pastor, there's nothing sadder than officiating the funeral for parents who've lost a child. Job, as we read earlier, had three daughters and seven sons, and they're all gone. It broke his heart. But notice now Job's reaction, starting in verse 20. At this, in other words, at, at getting all this news, Job got up and tore his robe. That was an ancient way of showing grief. He shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. In other words, I didn't bring anything into the world and I'm not gonna take anything out of it. And by the way, that's true for all of us. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Friends, that's the kind of faith to which I hope we all aspire. All these blessings, all these gifts were from God anyway. He gives and takes away, and my heart will truly say, blessed be the name of the Lord. But believe it or not, Job's ordeal is far from over. The well is about to go dry on Job's health as well as all these other things. Notice this provocative dialogue here. We're going now to chapter two, verse three. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Then Satan sneers, skin for skin. A man will give all he has for his own life, but stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones. In other words, let the well go dry on his health, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then. He is in your hands, but you must spare his life. Now here is where I want to stop and ask at least a dozen questions like, why would God allow this? 
I mean, is Job just a pawn in Satan's hands? Why doesn't God say, no way, you can't do that, Satan. Keep your hands off of him. You know, I think we Christians talk a pretty good game about wanting God's glory. But when it comes right down to it, if God getting glory means we don't feel good in the process, we're not too thrilled with that plan, to be honest. Trust me, Christian friend, your best life now is going to involve some discomfort. It's often in the darkness that our light shines brightest for God's glory. Let's keep reading. Chapter 2, verse 7. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. When life falls apart, most people instinctively ask, what have I done wrong? You know, maybe we ought to ask, what have I done right? Why is Satan considering me a strategic target here? Satan is strategic in the way he works. There's always a method to his madness. But then Job encountered an additional problem. His wife became understandably bitter. His wife said to him, are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, you're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. Now, people want to trash Job's wife here, but, but let's not be too hard on her. Remember, she was suffering too. And her husband's strong faith in God seemed almost repulsive when that same God had not protected her from pain. I've noticed something when grief strikes families. I've noticed that grief, when it hits a family, tends to either draw them together or drive them apart. And here, it's definitely driving a wedge between Job and his wife. Job's faith is being shaken. We read on in chapter three. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He said, may the day of my birth perish. And the night it was said, a boy is born. That day, may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine upon it. Does that puzzle you? I mean, wait a minute. Is this the same guy who said, the Lord is given and the Lord is taken away? Blessed be the name of the Lord? What's going on? And now he's saying, I wish I'd never been born. Listen. When the well goes dry in your life, your faith can be like a yo-yo. You're up and down and up and down. And, and honestly, it can vary even within the same day. I'll never forget asking a grieving husband whose wife had passed away. 
hey, buddy, how, how are you doing? He said, Pastor, it, <laughs> it depends on the hour you ask me. It literally yo-yos, he said, back and forth by the hour. Well, Job's faith was kind of like that. He was clearly shaken. But God was so patient with him. And, and as you read on through the book of Job, what follows is like 30-something chapters of the friends of Job, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, pouring out their advice, which is often, mind you, quite bad advice, actually. And eventually, Job begins to demand an explanation from God. He's just about had it. And he said, if I could just have an audience with Jehovah, if I could just have an audience with the Almighty, I'd challenge him because this is just not fair what's happening to me. But as we turn on to, to chapter 38 here, we finally hear God speaking directly to Job. Chapter 38, verse two. Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. This is, Job, this is God talking to Job now. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? Now, God is challenging Job, but he could have blasted him out of the water. He could have said, Job, who are you to challenge me, dude? I'm going to annihilate you. But as I read this, while God is very direct with Job, the overarching response of God is, look, Job, you've got to trust me here. You've got to trust me and let me hold you close because I'm working for your good and my glory through all of this. I have a couple of books in my library by a man named Joe Bailey. He was a pastor for many years. And he and his wife experienced the tragic loss of three children, two of them when they were teenagers. So they know what grieving is about. And when his third child died, Joe died. Joe Bailey jumped into his car and he said, I just started driving. I was hurting so badly. I was so angry. I was so bitter. He said, I pounded the steering wheel and I cried and I shouted and I cursed God as I shook my fist at him. And he said, you know, God didn't strike me dead. And I finally pulled over to the side of the road and I knew I was wrong. And I, I apologized. I repented. But even though he was wrong, I said, I know God understood me. God was patient with me. And I think Job realizes that too. He's been speaking about things here that he really didn't understand. As we turn on to <clears throat> chapter 42, verses 5 and 6, we read where Job says, my ears had heard of you, but, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. 
Think of that perspective. Earlier, Job had asserted, I'm a righteous man here, God, I don't deserve. But after his face-to-face encounter, he sees how shabby his own life is in comparison with God's perfection. And he realizes that he too needs to be humble. He too needs to have a repentant heart. And God was gracious with Job. Although he still bore an emotional scar, God blessed him more than he ever had. Uh, Verse 10 says, after Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord made him prosperous again and gave him twice as much as he had before. Remember before he had 7,000 sheep and now he has 14,000 sheep. And as you read about his camels, they're doubled. He now has twice as many. You read about his oxen, he's twice as many. Donkeys, now there's twice as many. They've all been doubled. And before he had 10 children and now God gives him 10 more. And people ask, why didn't God give him 20? That would not be a blessing, folks. (laughs) But truthfully, perhaps God gave him 10 more children because in reality, he really didn't lose the other 10. They would all be together in heaven one day. And this amazing story that started so dismal has a fabulously positive ending. Now, Quickly, quickly, I want to highlight three lessons from Job's story that we can take away with us today. First, tragedies happen with believers and non-believers alike. Now, since I've highlighted that lesson before in this series, just in the past weeks, I don't want to spend a bunch of time here. But I will hope everyone who calls Grace Fellowship their church home And anyone who's interested in the ways of God, I hope you know that the laws of nature out there are operating the same for the Christian and the non-Christian. The Bible says he causes his reign to fall on the just and the unjust. He causes his sun to rise on the evil and the good. As a person of faith, you're just about as vulnerable to calamity as a person who has little or no faith in God. Some Christians don't seem to like that, but it is just the truth. Now go with me here. Imagine how ridiculous it would get if, if when you became a Christian, God shielded you from all pain. Your yard never got dandelions or crabgrass. Your tires never went flat. Your investments always returned a huge profit. Your children never got sick. Your favorite team always won. And on top of all that, Christians now, Christians were the only people who didn't contract the COVID-19 virus. Think about it with me. If that were the case, people would profess faith out of selfish motives. They would just want the goodies that come with it. Faith in God would be phony and cheapened. God allows pain in the lives of true believers. If, for no other reason, then the world can tell the difference in our reaction to hardship. Second lesson from Job's story. It is misguided to blame God for all the pain in the world. 
One of the reasons, one of the reasons I love Job's story so much <laughs> is that it shows us clearly that pain typically has more than one source. And we're being naive if we try to pin it on just one thing. Think about it. I mean, you, you've read the story here. You've heard it today. Who would you blame for Job's problems? Who would you blame? Would you say, oh, well, it's a complete act of nature. There was a windstorm and lightning, and no person could control that. Is that what you'd say? Or, or, are you going to blame it on some of the evil people in the story, like the Chaldeans and the Sabaeans, who stole the livestock and murdered the workers who were caring for them? You got to admit, that was very evil. That was a criminal act of vice and cruelty. They chose to perpetrate. Or, or, are you going to blame all this on Satan? I mean, clearly Satan was scheming to bring calamity to Job and his family as the text makes crystal clear. So, who are you going to blame it on? I believe all of those factors were at work. But when the well goes dry, many people I know are quick to blame God. Why would a good God do this to me? Now listen, listen, to be sure God allowed this. He could have violated free will. He could have suspended the acts of nature. But clearly God did not directly cause it. I believe most of the wickedness, friends, most of the sin, most of the turmoil and calamity we see in this world today can be attributed to human choice, to sin and the tsunami of chaos that sin set in motion and continues to set in motion. So please, please, don't blame all the pain in the world on God. Rather, Understand that so much of what goes on in this world breaks God's heart. But there's a third lesson here that I want us to end with. God delights in bringing good out of calamity. Oh, you gotta love how Job's story ends. Chapter 42, verse 16. After this, Job lived 140 years he saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. And so he died old and full of years. And praise God, we're confident today, he celebrates the victory in heaven. What a happy ending to such a tragic saga. But when the well goes dry on your health, God can bring good out of calamity. I don't know if you've ever heard the name John Wimber. He's the founder of the Vineyard Movement, wrote several best-selling books years ago on healing. He alone was responsible for kind of bringing an emphasis on healing back into many evangelical churches. And even people who disagreed with Wimber uh, over his emphasis upon healing, physical healing and emotional healing, still respected him because of his personal godliness and his kind personality. He was a very influential and wonderful leader. 
But during the final years of his life, the final five years actually, Wimber suffered through a heart attack, a stroke, and cancer. Two years after being diagnosed with an inoperable tumor, he wrote an article called Signs, Wonders, and Cancer. And I'm reading from the article here. He ended the piece with these words. While I was still being treated for cancer, someone wrote me a letter asking, do you still believe in healing now that you've got cancer? I wrote back, yes, I do. And the truth is, I do. I also believe in pain. Both are found in the word of God. In the year I spent battling cancer, God purged me of a lot of habits and attitudes that weren't right. And through it, I grew stronger as a Christian. Some of my greatest spiritual advances in spiritual maturity came as I embraced the pain, as each day I had to choose to allow God to accomplish his work in me by any method, even adversity. Being through the valley of the shadow is frightening. Its uncertainties keep you alert to ever-changing scenario. I began to cling to every nuance of the doctor's words, shrugs, and grimaces. I experienced the full range of emotions that go with life-threatening illness. I wept as I saw my utter need to depend on God. I had to embrace the truth that I could not control my life. I also found that the view from the, the valley gave me a focus on Christ that I would not have found any other way. In the midst of the most terrible tragedy, God is at work, even though we don't always see it. Even though we may not understand now what God is doing, we can still trust his character, that he is still good, and he is still faithful. There is no doubt we live in difficult times. Calamity is all about us. But I fully anticipate we will look back on this season years from now and marvel at the people who were saved, the addictions conquered, the marriages deepened, the churches transformed, and the vaccines discovered as a result of this tragedy. And when we look back, we'll be reminded once again of what we all know to be true, that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. Let's pray. Father, remind us of that today. Even in the midst of this pandemic and all of the sort of challenges that are going on in people's lives, whether the well has gone dry on their health or in some other way, remind us today that you delight in bringing good out of calamity. In Jesus' name, amen.